Welcome to the Anderson Business Advisors Podcast, the nationally recognized preferred provider for asset protection and tax planning in the nation. This show is for investors and business owners looking to save on taxes and build long-term wealth with Toby Mathis, an attorney, author, business owner, and a featured instructor at Anderson's Tax and Asset Protection event held throughout the country. Enjoy the show. Hey guys, we're going to just go ahead and get started. This is Tax Tuesday. My name is Toby Mathis. And I'm Jeff Webb. And uh, we're going to be giving you as much as we can as far as some answers to tax questions and other philosophical questions that are out there. We do recommend that you have a little bit of wine. It helps. And not the three-year-old variety, but the actual adult libation. Let's see if, uh, all right. So here's what we do. We have a few rules. We have a live Q&A. I think it says question and answer. Or it might say Q&A on your uh, Zoom board. Uh, if you go there, you can ask very specific questions that are kept confidential to you. And we have Elliot, tax attorney, Dana, Troy, Matthew, Dutch. My gosh, we have everybody and their mother on today. Pio, Ian, Christos. We have a lot of tax, like a couple CPAs, tax attorney, accountants, all sorts of good people on, including the head of our bookkeeping. So if you have a question, make sure that you ask today, go into that question and answer feature, Q&A, and uh, this is a really good day to be asking questions. Hey, where are you at today? Where are you located physically? Right? Not, I'm in a bizarre state of mind. Let's just say, where are you physically? We see Orlando, we see Mooresville, North Carolina. Where is everybody? City and state. Get an idea where everybody's running around at today. Miami, Boise, Killeen, a bunch of Texas, Washington State, Annapolis, more Dallas, Georgia, Santa Monica. Wow. San Francisco, Jacksonville, New Hampshire. And make sure you're putting that in the chat feature, not the feature. (laughs) He put it in chat. All right, Chicago. Uh, Hey, if you have questions, Philly, that's my hometown. Chilling in Biloxi with your bro. That's good. Let's see. Straight state of Texas, Arizona, Jacksonville, Dallas, Delaware. We got people all over the country today. So that's good. So thank you for joining us. Hopefully, this will be uh, fruitful for you. You'll learn a bunch of good stuff. Hey, if you have very, very detailed questions about your uh, personal taxes, A, we'll answer the general stuff here. But if you get into stuff where you actually need prep done and things like that, then please become a client. And if you're a platinum, you could ask very detailed questions of yourself and it doesn't cost you anything. You can do that in your platinum portal. If you don't know what platinum is, say, hey, in chat, I don't know what platinum is. I'd love someone to talk to me about it. That'd be great. And then uh, we can get somebody talking to you. Platinum's real simple, 35 bucks a month. And you can ask all the questions you want just to respond to a question from Toby. There we go. You can ask all the questions you want, both on the legal side and then written questions to the uh, to the accountants. We do it written because we know you guys will ask the same question every year. So we like to make sure that it's in writing so, so that uh, you can look at it the following year. All right, opening questions. We have a whole bunch today, so we're going to jump through it. I bought NFTs in 2021 and early 2022 with the hopes of selling them to make a profit. Unfortunately, the ones I bought have no secondary or resale market value and are essentially worthless. How can I account for the money that was invested and now gone? So we'll go over that one. Do LLCs or excuse me, do corporations get double tax? Pros and cons of a C Corp, an S Corp and an LLC. So pretty open question there. We'll get into that. I'm starting a boat rental business. Is the purchase of the boat able to be written off? The first year, can it be spanned over five years? Jeff, I hope you know the answers to all these because I'll be mailing it in today. Right. I own a child care center that is set up as a corporation and taxed as an escort. It has a line of credit of $150,000. I'm a new real estate investor and so would like to know if I can lend those funds to myself to purchase a house to buy, repair, rent, repeat, or refinance, or fix and flip. When they say burr, that usually stands for buy rehab, rent, refinance, and repeat. So we're missing an R there. So either they're not going to rent it or they're not going to refi it. Then I'm just teasing. It's Burr. If a California resident owns rental properties and or multifamily syndication in other states, 
we got to keep our mind on that syndication. So I'd say it's Arizona and Atlanta. Atlanta's not a state. But anyway, we'll get into that. With net operating loss and a K-1 net rental loss, does he, she need to file an income tax return in those states despite the dollar filing threshold? I don't know what that means, but we'll get into it. Can he, she wait until they turn a profit capital gain to file cumulatively? We'll answer your question. Although I'd love it if you picked a gender. I, U.S. <laughs> Sorry, I'm grumpy today. Cranky. I, U.S. citizen, want to start a foreign business with a partner who is a foreigner. Despite or besides the foreign country rules for setting up the company, what is the best way to set it up so that I do not have U.S. tax hassles? I would be a minority owner. What is the threshold for ownership to not have a U.S. tax nightmare? What are the requirements? Do you have a video on the subject? Interesting question. I bought a property for the purpose of subdivision without renting it out in 2016. And I didn't report it for my tax on my tax for depreciation or any deduction. Can I catch up on all depreciation for 2021? Sounds like they haven't used it for anything for what, for Mm -hmm. five years. With cost segregation and not bonus, I know, without going back to amend prior year tax returns. So we'll talk about that one. Jeff, hopefully you know the answer going like this. You're just reading questions today? I'm just reading questions and drinking coffee. All right. I just received a notice from the IRS asking me to pay taxes on the money withdrawn from my retirement under the CARES Act in 2020. I thought I had three years to pay back the money withdrawn in 2020, which means I still have 2022 to pay back the money that was withdrawn. How do I proceed? Good question. We'll answer that. I bought a house and Jeff's going to answer that. I'll clarify. It's all Jeff. I bought a house in 2015 and have lived there for about two years, then moved out of state. I let my cousin stay. That was your first mistake right there. You let a cousin, they're not going to leave and take care of the house for me. I recently refinanced my house with a cash out option. And now the new loan is under rental property last December, 2021. By listening to your video about the exclusion when we sell our primary home. My question is, if I convert my house back to a primary home, can I still qualify for that exclusion when I sell my home in the future? Uh, it looks like it was purchased for 600000 and now it's worth $1.2 million. So congratulations on a lot of appreciation. We will address your t- tax questions as well. So we, yeah, somebody says, would you do one question at a time? We will. We will. We always read them in the beginning so you guys see all the questions we're going to go over. And then we'll go through them one at a time, right? I owned a rental property for 27 years. If I move back into it and make it a primary residence, then sell it after three years, can I legally avoid depreciation recapture upon sale? Good question, which we'll answer. I'm 67 years old. If I do a Roth 2022 conversion, can I co-mingle the Roth conversion into an existing Roth self-directed IRA? Are there any potential negative consequences to doing this? Does the five-year rule reset for the entire Roth or just the conversion amount? But Jeff will be answering that. Speaking of Jeff answering things, hey, if you like these types of questions, and we're going to go through the answers, but if you like just saying, hey, I didn't even think of that, go to our YouTube channel. It is absolutely free. And uh, there's the rotating red or flashing red. Go on in there and uh, subscribe absolutely free. And we put up probably two or three videos a week on a whole bunch of topics. In fact, there's a whole bunch listed there. Uh, Let's see how to transfer real estate from a C-Corp to an LLC. Is is retirement income considered passive or active? How to reduce taxable income? Yada, yada, yada. So there's a whole bunch in there. Plus we post all of our Cats Tuesdays. And if you're watching this on YouTube, you know that we do our live cast here. All right, Jeff. I bought NFTs, non-fungible tokens, mm-hmm. in 2021. That's what NFT is. And uh, not a bored ape. That's the ones that are worth millions of dollars. This does not sound like a bored ape, right? It's a bored grape. They thought that maybe it was something because it sounded so similar. All right. In, t- in early 2022, with hopes of selling them to make a profit. So they bought some NFTs. Sounds like they didn't create it themselves. They bought it. This is important. Unfortunately, the ones I bought have no secondary or resale market value and are essentially worthless. How can I account for the money that was invested and is now gone? What say you, 
Mm. I will let you know that IRS has been good enough to provide us zero guidance on NFTs. That just doesn't sound like the IRS that I know. They're so good about telling us exactly what the rules are. How long did it take them to get us info on uh, crypto, like five or six years after <laughs> it came out? Or? There is one bit of guidance. One. Yeah. And uh, I think it's a rev, rev proc. And they explain, here's how we're going to treat these two or three things. And then everybody's extrapolating. So guess, what do you think that I know? Uh, we may be on different opinions here. I, I'm thinking that IRS is going to treat this since you're unable to sell it as a personal asset. Whereas on the other hand, you think it's an investment and you could probably treat it as a capital loss for the entire match you invested in. Yeah, the, the guidance that we have thus far. And there's not specific guidance, but the tax courts and tea leaves and all that good mm-hmm. stuff and, and comments is that NFTs are essentially assets, capital assets that are going to be treated as collectibles. So collectible just is a fancy way of saying if you sell it after a year, you're going to be taxed at a up to 28% instead of up to 20%. It's taxed at your ordinary bracket up to 28%. So once you hit that... 32% magically reverts to 28%. And that's what you pay if you make money. If you don't make money, I think it's a capital loss. Capital losses offset capital gains with the exception of that $3,000 a year could be used to offset other income. So this is not somebody who created their NFT. Correct. That's a whole other nightmare because the IRS wants to tax the creation of the NFT Unlike anything else, like if I, if I, like somebody's saying, hey, this sounds like a gambling or an entertainment expense. If I was to paint a new work of art, I don't get taxed on the creation of that work of art. If you create this capital asset, the IRS is of the position, it's kind of like mining, that they want you to perhaps pay tax on it. I was just going to say, it does resemble uh, crypto mining. Yeah. When you create the asset, you get taxed on it. I think that's how they're going to treat it. So I think that NFTs are going to get the same treatment as crypto, which is treated as capital. The only difference is that they treat NFTs as collectibles, although I would argue that some of those cryptos are more like uh, collectibles than they are like real virtual currency. But yeah, so I think... If you invested in it, and this is what it says, I, I bought it for a, 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 an investment, I think mm-hmm. you're going to have a capital loss, and that's how I would treat it. I don't think you're going to have any guidance that says otherwise. And then who knows what the IRS comes out and ultimately gives us. There might be a revenue procedure on it, maybe. Maybe we get something. What do you think? I think they're going to give us some guidance. I think it kind of feels like they're going to wait and see what the market does. And that's, that's really curious because unlike crypto, NFTs, they've found that the vast majority of them are worthless. Uh, there has been a lot, billions thrown into NFTs that may not have any value at all. Mm-hmm. And I'm not going to say I told you so, but... Um, I told you <laughs> Maybe. Somebody says it does sound like a gambling or an entertainment expense. And to a certain extent, it is a little bit like gambling because when they win, they win huge. Mm-hmm. Like those board ape things are millions. But um, you know, it depends. Yeah. It is it is kind of like I look at it like it is a piece of art. Do you take losses on art? I buy a Picasso and it goes down in value. I think that would be hard to do if you still own the art. Mm. Personal assets you don't get to write off assets, but if you show that it was like part of a business, I imagine you might be able to. We'll see. That's not one of our questions for today. So we're going to give it a hard pass. Do C-Corps get double or get taxed double? Pros and cons, C-Corp and S-Corp versus LLC. Let's talk about the double taxation first. That was really a prevalent talk when C-Corps were being taxed at 35, actually up to 39%. And by double taxation, they mean the C-Corps getting taxed on their income. And when they pay out dividends, the shareholders are getting taxed on those dividends. Mm -hmm. You should should get taxed as ordinary income. Yes. Uh, Now it's it's almost always taxed as capital gain income. Mm -hmm. Long-term. Long-term capital gain, yes. So there is that. It's not as bad as it sounds. Uh, Like you always say, calculate, Mm -hmm. calculate, calculate. Mm -hmm. Uh, Because it's possible to pay dividends out that are not going to be taxable to you personally. Yeah. Yeah. And of course, when when a corporation pays dividends, the corporation doesn't get a deduction for that. Mm -hmm. So... Corporation makes hundred grand, being taxed at a flat twenty one percent this yep. year. 
So there's $79,000 to pay out if it chose to, because it's crazy and it pays out a dividend. Look, we probably have what, less than 10 clients total that pay out dividends. Mm -hmm. It's rare that you see dividend paying companies. If it's big, it probably does, but otherwise you're probably zeroing that puppy out or you're just keeping that income at a lower tax bracket. But let's say you did pay it out. You're going to pay the 21% plus that 79,000 could be at zero in that like if that was your income and it was married filing jointly, you'd have what 80, over 80,000, 80,800 that you could receive at the 0% or it's being taxed at 15%. Regardless, it's not like you're getting shellacked. The math on that would put you right around the 35, 36% mark. So it's not that much different than if it had just hit you personally in one of your higher tax brackets. In fact, it may actually save you one or 2%. But that's not the big gist of this one. They're looking at a C-Corp versus an S-Corp versus an LLC. Let me dispose of the LLC and then I'll throw you the C-Corp versus S-Corp. LLC is not a tax designation. There's no such thing as an LLC tax return. The LLC, you tell it, the it being the IRS, the government, here's how I'm going to treat it from a tax perspective. You either say, I'm going to ignore it. So just look at my return if I'm the owner. You're going to say tax it as a partnership if there's two or more owners and you don't want it to be taxed as a corporation, or it's going to be taxed as a corporation. The default is a C-corp, or I could choose to have it flow onto my return, which is an S-corp. So those are our choices. So when you say LLC, let's just throw it out. That's something that the state creates. LLCs don't exist to the Internal Revenue Service. They just close their eyes and say, I don't, you know, you say LLC and they go, what? I, I don't understand what you're saying. Uh, the only words I understand are partnership, S Corp, C Corp, or just ignore it. Uh, and you keep saying LLC, they're, they're not going to understand what you're saying. So this would be an LLC tax as an S Corp or a C Corp. What are the big differences between an S Corp and a C Corp from a tax perspective? I know they both have corp in their name, but I really don't find them that comparable. The S-Corp, for me, is really more akin to the partnership. Yep. Uh, it has stricter rules about who can be uh, shareholders of your S-Corporation. Mm -hmm. The S-Corporation is a pass-through, and it passes through its income, expenses, and so forth down to the shareholders. Mm -hmm. A C-Corp is its own entity, its, its own being. Mm -hmm. So it gets taxed itself and can pay, like we were talking about earlier, pay dividends to mm -hmm. the shareholders or salaries or... Uh, have transactions with the shareholders. There's two big differences from a tax standpoint. I mean, A, that you hit the big ones. S corporations flow onto the owner's returns. Mm -hmm. There's limitations on who can be owners, natural people. There could be up to 100. There's one class of shares. C corps allow for more complexity. The S corp flows onto your return. The C corp pays its own tax. It's the easiest one. But here's the there's a couple other things that C corp can reimburse employees medical, dental, vision, long-term care coverage, 100%, and it's not taxable to the employee. As corporations, if they cover an, uh, a medical expense, it's taxable to you. And then on your personal return, you'd write off the insurance premium. So they're not apples to apples. There are some subtle differences besides the flow-through. You can write off more with the C-Corp than you can with, uh, with an S-Corp. And uh, you know, people sometimes miss that. A lot of folks, uh, accountants instinctively, I think, go towards the S-Corp because they everybody that's gone through school in the last 25 years, 30 years, learned double taxation can be devastating because, like Jeff said, the corporate tax rate used to go up to 39%. Then you'd have ordinary tax on your whatever your highest bracket is. So like You could get literally crushed on a tax standpoint, if you, mm -hmm. if you made too much money in a C-Corp. So they always, the, the, the rule of thumb was S-Corp until proven differently. So, you know, everybody's situation is different. I don't think there's a one size fits all. And if you're looking at a corporation, you really ought to be looking at talking to somebody to make sure you're picking the right uh, methodology for you. Plus, depending on what you're doing, like if you're a real estate agent, a doctor, an architect, something with a license, you may have restrictions just because your license is to how you can structure. You may not be able to be a C-Corp. Can I get some general mm -hmm. what I like? I like the C-Corporation if I'm doing flipping. I like flipping in the C-Corp. Mm -hmm. uh, if I'm managing 
any of my business, including real estate, I want to do that from the C Corp, not the S Corp. Mm-hmm. And there's other times with the S Corp, I'm looking for the S Corp to be running my business. Mm-hmm. Uh, that is, I will use RAL, uh, resident, uh, residential assisted living, assistant living. I'm actually putting the operations of that business in an S corporation while keeping the property separate from it. They'd have a lease between the two. Have a lease between the two. Yeah. Somebody says, what is the best option for a lawyer? Probably going to end up having to be an S corporation. Mm-hmm. Because your licensing, generally speaking, they they want to see it. Although, you know, most states may or may not have a restriction. So you just have to check with your bar. But generally speaking, you're going to start with an S. Now, here's one thing. You have something called 199A. It's this 20% deduction that flows through on partnership, sole proprietorship, and S corporation returns. That could actually lower your income by up to 20% of the qualified business income, QBI. So we want to make sure that we're, again, you're doing things. Jeff joked, I, I, I have three rules, calculate, calculate, calculate. You know, I just, let's make sure that we're not screwing ourselves up by something. Have somebody who knows what they're talking about actually do some of the, some of the analysis and know that it's easy. Every year you could change your C-Corp to an S-Corp. You go from an S to a C-Corp, you have five years that you got to sit on your hands and you can't do anything. So if you're starting out, you're by default a C-Corp you may or may not want to like the first year, just do a wait and see, you know, unless there's a compelling reason to go right to the S let's go to the next one. A few questions out there, but our guys are just hammering away. Dutch Ian, Christos, Pio, Troy, Matthew, Dana, Elliot. They're all just cracking away. Did I miss anybody? There's so many of them out there. There's a lot of them. Who else? Did I screw something up? Why did I say Dutch? I know Dana. Yeah, I think I got everybody. And then there's us. We're not doing much. All right. I'm starting a boat rental business. Is the purchase of the boat able to be written off the first year or can it be spanned out over five years? Yes. Actually, the the default is would be expensive in the first year, but you can elect out of bonus depreciation and take it over five years if you choose to. Caveat. You got to use it more than 50% business otherwise right it's going to be deemed personal yeah i'm going to caveat your caveat do my caveat of the caveat of the caveat if you're going to have a boat rental business i would not use it for personal at all it's it's going to taint the whole thing and you're taxed on the personal use so the way the irs treats it is hey i have a business asset and this is listed property so this is like this is something that they'll probably look at if you have hey i have a 70 percent business usage they're probably going to want to see the records. Mm-hmm. And if you have 30% personal usage, they're probably going to want to make sure that you're paying tax on that portion that was allocated over to you. So if it's more than 50%, technically, like if you're using it 70%, you get 70% of the write-off, right? Yeah, I would imagine it's similar to um, airplane usage that they're going to want to check your logs. Mm-hmm. They're going to want to compare engine time to how much business so, use you have so what you said is absolutely right if you're going to rent a boat don't use it make sure that and if you do make sure you document anytime you use it personally and you probably want to consider not using uh accelerated depreciation definitely not bonus if you're going to have personal use on it just take straight line depreciation mm-hmm. yeah but i mean if that first year you use it 100 percent, you write it all off and then you have future years where you're using it personal, just know there's going to be a tax implication to you if you're doing it. Like you say, oh, this first year I'm going to use it. You drop below 50% and like the first year you use that 100% for your boat rental. And then in year two, you make it all personal. You're going to have recapture of that entire amount. Let's see, go to the next one. I own a child care center that is set up as a corporation and taxed as an S corp. It has a line of credit of 150,000. I am a new real estate investor and would like to know if I can lend those funds to myself to purchase a house to burr and or fix and flip. And burr just means buy, rehab, rent, refinance. And then start over. What do you say? And repeat. And repeat it. So I'll, I'll I'll go with the tax and accounting side. Yes, you could do this. I would make sure there's promissory notes between the S corporation and whoever it's borrowing money to. I'd want to have that all laid out. So there's no reason you couldn't do that with a fix or flip or a buy a rental property. 
you do have to plan on repaying that money to the S corporation. Document it and then honor the document. Yes. My one concern is if there's stipulations in the loan documents on the line of credit that it needs to be used for the child care service and not paid out to somebody else. Yeah, you look at the bank, but it's 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 cash. Even though you have a line of credit, if there's not a restriction on its use, and most don't, they say it's for business use. You put it in the business. If you wanted to distribute it out to yourself, you could do that with one caveat. And that caveat is if you aren't on the hook, if you don't have basis and you take out $150,000 of a business, you may have long-term capital gains on it. So the safest route is to loan it. Mm-hmm. because then there's no tax implication at all. But if you have plenty of basis in your S-corp, and you would know by asking your accountant, and you have a line of credit in there, because people do this all the time, they'll take money out of their business, just distribute it to yourself. It's not a loan. You know, I'm not going to pay it back. The company is going to pay back my loan, which is fine. But I want to make sure I just want the cash out of my business. A lot of businesses do that. And they'll borrow against their assets so that they can pay and distribute money out to the owners. Not uncommon. You could absolutely do it. And then you could use it for anything you want. You want to go buy a house with it? You want to go buy a boat? We have a follow-up question on the boat. But you can do anything you want with it. So yeah, at that point, based upon what you say, then the only thing you need to make sure you have is a plan to at least pay the interest on that loan, if not make payments down towards the principal. Mm-hmm. Now, Pam has a question about the boat. What if you buy a boat in your personal name and you use it more than 50% for business? What's the implication there? You would have to somehow value the reimbursement. Mm-hmm. Well, she bought it. I bought it for a hundred grand. I used it for 60% of the time for business. Well, I'm thinking like for, mm-hmm. for vehicles, you, you're reimbursing based on mileage, but you're yeah. not going to have that. How are you tracking? It's going to be by hours, I think. You're going to have to document the usage, keep a keep a boating log, which days you used it personally, mm-hmm. which days you used it. And then I would like, let's say that you rented it 50 days and you used it personally for 10 days, then you're going to have that ratio and it can reimburse you tax-free and take the deduction. The big thing, Pam, is to make sure you have the proper insurance. Make sure that they understand that, other, that you're giving that boat to somebody else to uh, ride around on a business purpose. And if it's in your personal name, just know you have a lot of exposure there uh, as far as if third parties are on that vessel and, uh, and they cause a problem, there, there's, there's exposure there for you personally. So I would always suggest that you make sure that if you're going to have third parties use something in a rental capacity, make sure there's an LLC around it. Yeah, I, I kind of feel like if I'm running the boat out to other persons, mm-hmm. And I am not piloting the boat. Mm-hmm. I'm burying that boat in some LLC or something to protect me. Mm-hmm. Well, even if I'm piloting, I'm going to bury it. I may have to refinance it as an LLC, understood. You, you know, you don't necessarily, most lenders are happy if you're on it, you transfer it into the LLC. The Coast Guard likes it when it's in the LLC, if you're going to be using it. Uh, it's easier to sell that LLC than the boat, by the way, when you go to transfer it at some point. I've actually done that. Somebody asked about 280A G2. Yeah, we've been talking about that now for 25 years. Yes, you're, I think you're referring to 280A subsection G2. And uh, yes, we're very well. Uh, that's the Augusta rule for those of you guys who don't know what it is. All right. If a California resident owns rental property and or multifamily syndications in other states, Arizona or Georgia, with net operating loss and K1 net rental loss. So this gets weird. Net operating loss indicates that it's a business. Yeah. Net rental loss indicates that there's rental, but it says rental property. So I'm trying to figure out how they're going to have a net operating loss. Does he, she need to file an income tax return in those states despite the dollar filing threshold? Can he or she wait until they turn a profit capital gain to file cumulatively? So uh, if I have properties in Georgia and what was the other in Arizona... I'm going ahead and filing returns in those states. Mm-hmm. I don't have to. You're absolutely right. If I have no income in those states. However, what I want to make sure the states know is that I have losses in those states. I want to grab them. I'm going to grab them forward. and accumulate them because what you can't do is go back later and file the, you have the cumulative results that say, well, I lost 10,000, 10,000, but made a hundred thousand. So my profit's only 80,000. 
each return is only for that year. So uh, you don't have to, but I would strongly suggest doing it. Mm. It's not that expensive to do. The other thing you have is when you have a syndication, they may be filing the state return on behalf of all the partners. All the, uh, I know what you're talking about. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they're doing a consolidated or whatever that's called. Yes. I know there's a special word for it, a term of art, but they're filing the return. Somebody put it in chat. They always do. There's usually an account out there who says, you guys, here's the term. Composite return. Composite return. So, so what a composite return is, especially like on these syndications, is they are filing this composite return on behalf of all non-residents of the state that they have to file in. Yep. that's And that alleviates you from having to go on your K-1. They're paying your taxes for you. Which they're not really. But they're taking it out of your money. They're paying your taxes for you. <laughs> yeah. They're like, hey, hey, you pay tax even if you don't owe one. Thank you, Mr. Syndicator. No, I'm teasing. Uh, and, but that's generally true that what you pay in composite taxes is generally higher than what you would pay if you filed the return yourself. Uh-huh. But then you don't have to deal with a headache. So file the return. We want them losses. Let's see. I, I, I was going to say, speaking of losses, no, no. Hey, we have a bunch of event and training workshops. There's two that are coming up that I want to draw your attention to right away. The tax and asset protection workshop, June 4th, or you could do the infinity investing workshop. They're on the same day. You get to pick your poison. The infinity investing workshop is for women only, I believe. Patty, make sure, is that women only for the for the investing only. I know that, uh, that we do these investing workshops uh, that are women specific. And then uh, we have the tax and asset protection workshop, which is on uh, June 4th. If you want to learn about LLCs, corporation trusts and tax strategies, and even leg- legacy planning, we do that on June 4th as well. So there's the, uh, I think Patty just shared out the link for the tax and asset protection, uh, but you would also want to share out the link for the infinity investing as well. If you are interested in, in in perpetual wealth over your multiple lifetimes, we call it infinity because we don't sell things. So while everybody else is freaking out about this market, we are going, woo, sale, because there's a lot of revenue that you can buy, perpetual streams of income that'll last decades, if not longer, if you do it right. And a lot of the companies we follow have been paying out increasing amounts of income for more than 50 years. So, and I didn't misstate that. We buy long haul, like the, these companies that have been around forever. They don't care about inflation. They're like, well, it's just inflation. They don't care about interest rates because they're like, why would I care about interest rates? I don't have much debt. So they're good companies. For guys that are answer, asking questions, make sure they go into question and answer unless you're asking something specific to us on a question that, that we are answering. Then put it in chat or just commenting. Like, Jeff looks really good today. That would be a good comment to put in chat. A U.S. citizen want to start a foreign business with a partner who is a foreigner. I'm not going to say anything. Well, maybe I should. No. Besides the foreign country rules for setting up the company, what is the best way to set it up so I do not have a U.S. tax hassle? I would be a minority owner. What is the threshold for ownership to not have a U.S. tax nightmare? What are the requirements? Do you have a video on the subject? I'm going to start off by saying we are not foreign tax experts. However, there are some things we can talk about. If you're going to form a business that you don't want having tax issues in the United States, you're going to want something like a corporation, and they can be called different things in different countries. Yeah, Every country has its own rules. Mm -hmm. The U.S. has a real simple one. No matter where you make money in the world, it's taxable in the U.S. We're one of two countries that do that. So they don't care where it's made. They don't care whether you pay tax in that country. They're going to tax it here. If there's a treaty, we might give you credit for the amount of tax you paid in that country. If there's no treaty, then they don't care. If you are working out of the country, there may be an exemption for your W-2 income or your active income that you earn in another country. There might be something there, but you are here. It says here, you're here and you're setting something up and you're worried about a U.S. tax hassle. If you receive money, your chances are you're going to be paying tax. So what if if this is a, so we don't want to pass through entity. That's going to be a problem for this situation. What what really matters is what you're receiving. If, 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 If you have ownership in an entity, there, there might, you might be triggering reporting requirements 
for example, uh, under the FBAR regs, there's they want to know whether you have control over funds overseas. Mm-hmm. So there may be a triggered requirement. If you're a signer on something, if you're not a signer on something, then I suggest that you wave at some of that money and, and kiss it goodbye because we see this over and over and over again. And again, we've been doing this, you've been doing it a lot longer than I have, but many decades over and over again, you see U.S. taxpayers invest in things in other countries, unbeknownst to the U.S. taxpayer, they don't have very many rights in that other country and the monies go missing. Over and over and over again. It's always somebody like this one's different. This one I've been, this this company has been around. I know these people, da, 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 they're really great. Invariably, you don't have rights unless you're going to fly over to that country. You're going to engage the equivalent of an attorney in that country and you're going to avail yourself to the courts depending on what exists in that country of that country. And it can be a very, you know, disturbing process for you or lack. Yeah, I, and I don't know that I would want to fight a business partner who mm-hmm. lives in that country and the, the entity is formed in that country. I just feel that I'm starting out well, a losing position. And yeah, I think that what we're saying is regardless, if you're making something on it, you're probably going to have a, uh, it's going to trigger us reporting no matter what. If you have access and control over funds and you have more than a de minimis amount of, of shares, um, you might ha- end up, and especially if you're on bank accounts, you may have reporting requirements just because you have control over foreign assets. Right. Uh, you may have, uh, we talk about the uh, FBAR, you, there's also FATCA requirements that if you have certain financial interests outside of the United States, greater than, somebody, it's not 10,000, but. Somebody was just putting it in, I think, in the chat. Yes. And failure to report these interests is hugely expensive. The penalties start at $10,000 per incident. Mm -hmm. FBAR is a percentage of your account value. Yeah. If if they find willful disregard, they can take half of your financial per year. Yep. So yeah, we had a gentleman that we inherited that uh, was a big firm too. They, They missed off 70 dollars worth of interest on a Canadian account, U.S. resident, Canadian, just across the border from where, you know, mm-hmm. and uh, seems like a small deal. It cost him $37,000 for $70 of interest. And he was lucky because they cut it in half. It could have been worse just because they had a bank account sitting in a foreign jurisdiction that they failed to report. And they actually did it under the amnesty program. So yeah, it's like, real kick in the shin stuff. So again, not to scare you away from investing foreign, but you probably want to do just shares in a company and keep your involvement to a minimum. No and salary. Then, yeah. And, and just just recognize that control could, could trigger, a large amount of ownership could trigger disclosure, even if you're not having income or control over funds could trigger reporting, even though you don't have any income. And you really should talk to an attorney or CPA who knows the rules in the country where you plan. Absolutely. 100%. Have, you got to have somebody in that jurisdiction that knows what they're doing because the rules are different. Mexico is different than Canada, which is different than somebody was talking about Croatia and, and just different than, you know, you just keep going through the list. So you want to make sure that you have somebody in a, in that particular jurisdiction that's advocating for you. And if you don't, here's the, here's, I'll save you some money. Don't do it. And then goofy things, like sometimes they just tax assets. So I've had a lot of clients that like to invest internationally on, on real estate. And I'm trying to think, I think it was Marbella, where they just got hit one year. It was like a 30% tax. They said, boom, guess what? You have to come up with the cash. And you're like, it's not fair. It's not fair. You bailed yourself to that jurisdiction. If they want to hit you on something, they can't. You're subject to their rules. So just do it with your eyes open. All right. I bought a property for the purpose of subdivision without renting it out in 2016 and didn't report it on my tax for depreciation or any other deduction. Can I catch up on all depreciation for 2021? I filed an extension with cost segregation, not bonus, I know, without going back to amend prior year tax return. What say you? If this property has never been rented out, there is no depreciation to recapture. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's not the wrong word. There's no depreciation to catch up. It says 2016, so I'm going to assume that they've never rented it out until this year. 
if you have rented out sometime in the past, uh, say 2020, 2019, and how depreciation works is depreciation doesn't start until the property is placed in service. Or available, right? Yes. Available for, in this case, rent would be considered being placed in service. Yep. So that's the trick. Time out. You don't start depreciating until that property is ready for somebody to use it. If you buy a property and you're going to rehab it, you don't get depreciation. That's why some people will say, buy the beater with people in it, keep people in it, and then do a rehab in a future year. And then you could still cost seg that property. Cost segregation is a fancy way of saying breaking up the structural components, which is 27 and a half or 39 year property versus the 15, seven and five year property, breaking that out, like mm-hmm. the like driveways, fences, even carpeting and linoleum and cabinets and specialty plumbing and all electricity, electric, specialty electric, all those have a much shorter period of time where you can take bonus. The individual is mentioning bonus for 2016. That's the year, that's the rule that you would have to apply. If they didn't have bonus depreciation, you wouldn't get it. If you did, then you would get it. If you do, well, I wouldn't worry about tenant improvements and things like that. I would just say, hey, if you haven't had it available for rent, just because you say, oh, shoot, I should have, you know, I could have, missing out on depreciation doesn't mean you get to start taking depreciation. It starts once it's available for someone to, to, to occupy or use, or when somebody actually rents it. Isn't that wild? I always just find this stuff like fascinating every time I look. And if you have a vacant property, you don't get to create a loss anyway. Yeah. So there's there's a few unknowns in this one that we would need to know to give you true guidance. But it, okay, I have a property that I was going to subdivide and it's just been sitting empty. You're not depreciating. Right. Sorry. So if, if you do have depreciation that needs to be caught up, you can do that in the current year. And you don't have to do the cost segregation. Mm-hmm. It is a change of accounting method, just like the cost segregation would be, but it's done in the current year. Uh, it's a depreciation adjustment. And I, I do want to say one other thing here real quick, just as it, we are assuming that there's a depreciable property. If this is land, so you say, I bought a property and it's really just land, you can't depreciate land. So it's all for not anyway, not until you build stuff on it. Do we worry about depreciation? So this is hey, I have some land and I'm going to subdivide it. I'm going to put some infrastructure in it. Can I do any deductions? Once you put some infrastructure in, you could possibly, like if you build a, there's some ones where you get all the, pretty much everything you put onto it, you can write off. That's if you're doing like uh, mobile home parks and things like that, you're building all the pads and you're putting in infrastructure, the electricity, you could probably bonus depreciate a lot of that, write it off in year one, but you can't do anything with just land just by itself. Yeah. When you mentioned the purpose of being subdivision, that makes me feel like there's nothing there. There might be nothing there, which case some people think they, they don't realize you can't depreciate land. Land is not, has no useful life, never loses its life. This coffee cup might have a useful life or better yet, the cell phone, the cell phone, the IRS will say will last five years. Mine might two years and it's looking pretty ugly, but the IRS will say that's its useful life on a structure on, on a piece of property. If it's residential, they say it's going to last 27 and a half years. If it's non-residential, they say it's going to last 39 years. If it's a hotel, 39 years. Uh, so like I can't deduct land. No, you cannot deduct land. You get to deduct what you build on the land because that's what could fall over. We just ruined somebody's day. Maria's like, I'd be kidding me. I can't, what? I can't deduct land? No, you can't deduct land. All right, here's one. We're receiving IRS notices. I received a notice from the IRS IRS asking me to pay taxes on money withdrawn from my retirement under the CARES Act in 2020. I thought I had three years to pay the money withdrawn in 2020, which means I still have... 2022. So you have 2020, 2021, and 2022 to pay back the money. How do I proceed? Both you and the IRS are correct. Mm -hmm. You do have until 2022 to repay this uh, distribution. However, IRS technically wants you to pay back, pay taxes on a third of that distribution each year, 2021 and 22. 
their assumption is you ain't going to pay the, the distribution back. So Jeff and I had this discussion when the CARES Act was passed, and we like to make fun of them for stupid things that they did. And there were some that got clarified in future uh, legislation, but this was one that like we think, or at least I think is stupid. The IRS says you can take money out of your retirement account and not pay penalty and you pay the tax only if it's not put back into the account by the end of the third year. In fact, they said it's treated like a rollover. So if I roll over money from an IRA, I have 60 days. Let's say I take the money out of my IRA and I put it in another qualified plan or better yet, I leave employment and I say to my employer, I want to roll my 401k and they write me a check for 50 grand or whatever it is that's in there. They're going to issue me what's called a 1099R or is it a 10? Yeah, 1099R. Mm-hmm. And I am going to take that money and I'm going to put it into another retirement plan. And as long as it's done within 30 days, no harm, no foul. It's a rollover. And I report that on my return as here's distribution that I took and how much of it is taxable. And I say zero. The IRS wants us to treat the money from the CARES Act as though we took a third, a third, a third. So let's say that I took out $100,000 from my plan, from my retirement account. They want me to pay tax on $33,333 in 2020, $33,333 in 2021, and $33,333 in 2022. And then if you pay it back by the end of 2022, they want you to go back and amend the previous returns and say, ha, ah, it's not taxable. So I think, Jeff, you and I would agree. If you pay it back this year, file it. Like I would go back and I would say I have no taxable. Like mm-hmm. They'd want you to go back and file that return, report the income, but show it as zero taxable. But you got to make sure you pay it back in 2022. If you don't pay it in 2022, you're going to have the penalties and interest from that first third, penalty, penalties and interest from the second third for 2021. And then you would have the tax hit on 2022. See, I have a feeling since he's already getting notices, they want the tax now. Of course they're, 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 the they're not gonna now. want they're not gonna wait. So if he doesn't report that thirty three thousand dollars of taxable income, mm-hmm. they're they're gonna come after him. But they're, goofy, they're gonna make him uh, file a no. return and then go back and amend it. Technically, that's what you're supposed to do. You're supposed to report it on your 2020 tax. They're gonna say you owe us penalties and interest, and then you're gonna go back and amend it, and it's gonna and then you're not gonna owe anything. I never understood that I took a distribution in late 2020, and then four months later, I had to pay the tax on it. But that's why we said that that was dumb, the way that they're interpreting it. But the IRS gets to interpret things. It's the Treasury. Congress makes the rules, and then they say, here's how we're going to treat it. And they're treating it under the rules that were in place after Hurricane Katrina. So what they just basically said is they did a punt. Hey, we're going to treat it like we did the relief that was done under Mm -hmm. previous laws without really thinking about what it meant. Frustrating, I know. But I think, Jeff, what Jeff's saying is pay the tax, get them out of your hair, and then go back and amend it, and they'll give you a refund. Just don't paper file your... No. <laughs> do not paper file anything. The IRS got caught shredding 30 million tax documents because they... Uh, they the We're treasury. Fine. We don't need them. Yeah, they just, they just literally... They had truckloads of documents that were paper files. And they said, we can't process these. So they destroyed them. And the Treasury Inspector General caught them last, or was it two weeks ago or last week? Yeah, it's pretty. pretty well, the sad. commissioner said he was going to get them caught up. He didn't say how. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's like your email box. I haven't answered any emails in three weeks. Delete. <laughs> I answered them. I am all caught up. Yeah, I gave it the single finger salute. All right. But it's the government, so it's okay. All right. Uh, I bought a house in 2015 and I lived there for about two years. And then I moved out of state. I let my cousin stay and take care of the house for me. I recently refinanced the house with cash out option. And now the new loan is under rental property. I have no idea what that means. So he must have lived in it for two years. So, so 2015, 2016, 2017 cousin lived in it as personal property. So you probably couldn't do depreciation or anything. It's just family member. And now it's a rental property in December of 2021. Now, so there's how many years? We have six years of non-rental usage. 
My question is, can I convert the house back to a primary home and still qualify for the exclusion when I sell my house in the future? It's, I paid 600 grand, sounds like the basis and the value is 1.2. So the big question is, what if I make it my personal residence again? What could I avoid from a tax standpoint? What do you think? Uh, You're going to have to live in that house again for at least the next two years. Mm Mm-hmm. So that will give you the Section 121 exclusion. If you're single, it's 250, 250,000. If you're married, probably jointly, it's a half a million dollar exclusion. So that still leaves you with some gain. You could get rest, rid of the rest of the gain. Do I want to go here with Section 1031 by converting it back to a rental property again? Or Well, let's go over what it is now. It's investment property. So yeah. you could avoid the entire tax hit and... There's no recapture, or there's some recapture. You have you have December of 2021 to to, to today, yeah. Uh, to date. Yeah, I was putting the cart in front of the horse. Right. So we could avoid all of the tax if you if you 1031 it. If you don't 1031 it, now we have to worry about periods of non-qualified use, which really would only be the period of time that you rent it. So you'd have of all the years that you own that house. So 15, 16, 17, 18, 19, 20, 21, we're in 2022, you'd have a portion of it that's disqualified use. And then if you made it your personal residence for two years, we would have a small portion of the gain that would not be able to be used. Mm-hmm. I will just say this, based off of these numbers, you, if you're married, you get a $500,000 exclusion period. You're gonna, It's not the exclusion that they subtract against it's the value it's the gain that they subtract against so they might say you used it as a rental for one tenth of the time so if the gain is six hundred thousand you'd lose sixty thousand dollars of it so you'd have five hundred and forty thousand dollars of eligible gain to offset and you could use your 121 exclusion against it and then your basis would step up to not to get in too into the weeds but they could absolutely do it did I say that right? No, I, I'm just thinking about what you're saying, that if you want to get rid of it now, and it was investment property, you could 1031 it. Yeah, and it doesn't, the period of disqualified use is only if you're making it into an investment property. I'm going into the recesses of my brain on that one, but I'm pretty sure I'm right, that it's not when I let my cousin stay there. Since they're a family member, that would still be considered mm-hmm. personal use, but it's not your primary residence. So I can have three residences and I can only have one of them be my primary at any given time. Right. So technically I could have three houses, live in this one, two years, move into this one for two years, sell that one, use the exclusion, move into this one, two years, sell this one, use the exclusion again, wait two years and sell that one. Yep. And, and I could just be getting an exclusion every two years and I'm good. If I rent them out, there's going to be a period of non-qualified use unless it occurs in the two years after I lived in it as my primary residency. So if I live in it for 10 years, rent it for three, sell it, I'm okay. But if I rent it for 10 years, live in it for two, I'm not. I'm only going to get two twelfths of the gain would be eligible for capital gain exclusion. I'm sure I just lost 99.5. 9% of them, but just know that it's something you just call your accountant on and they'll be able to tell you. <laughs> we say calculate, calculate because it gets a little muddy, but we like mud. All right, Jeff, I owned a, speaking of money, I owned a rental property for 27 years. If I move back into it and make it a primary residence, then sell it after three years, can I legally avoid depreciation recapture on the sale? So you remember what we were just talking about in the mm-hmm. last question? This is where it all goes wrong. Yes. Just say no. Yeah. This is a Nancy Reagan. Yeah. The, this, the, the property is fully depreciated, so you probably have no basis on it. You're going to have a large gain. Now, you could Section 1031 this property. So you could trade it only if you don't make it into your primary residence. You can only trade a 1031 exchange property if it's an investment property. So do not move back into this house. Mm-hmm. I would exchange it so you don't have any tax or recapture. You don't have any capital gains or recapture tax. You're going to be recapturing the entire thing. And you're going to have a lot, like if this thing is a valuable property, you're eating almost all of it. The only thing you don't pay tax on is the land value. And that's its original land value. Right. So if you don't want to pay tax, 
do not move back into it. If you move back into it, do not sell it until you've made it back into an investment property. You have a period of 27 years of disqualified use. So if I live in it for three years, the only amount of gain that is eligible for the capital gain exclusion is the relationship between 30 years and three. So 10%. 10%. Yeah. So 10% of the gain would be eligible. So if there's a million dollars of gain, 100,000 I could avoid tax on under this scenario if you had it for 30 years. And that stinks. And it doesn't get really much better over time. Like, forget about it. What I really want to do is 1031 this into other properties. Mm -hmm. That's me being cranky. All right. I am 67 years old. I do a Roth 2022 conversion. Can I co-mingle the Roth conversion into an existing Roth self-directed IRA? That just means it's not in a regular brokerage house. It's There's a company that allows you to invest in other things. So Roth self-directed IRA. Are there any potential negative consequences to doing this? Does the five-year rule reset for the entire Roth or just the conversion amount? So yes, you can commingle Roth funds, conversion, what's the other one, inherited Roth mm-hmm. and uh, existing Roths that you contributed to. Are there negative consequences to this? Yes, because it goes into the five-year rule. So you have three different five-year rules for contributions, for conversions, and for inheritances. Mm-hmm. Each conversion gets its own five-year period. So if I convert it uh, today, today is what May something, mm-hmm. it would be considered converted on, the clock would start on January 1st of 2022. Yeah, and it's not like you're going to get ravaged if you, if you it's not going to reset the money that you've yeah. already had in there for five years. And on the money that you converted, you already paid tax. So what you're really looking at is what the 10% penalty plus mm-hmm. 10 plus tax on the, on the growth. Yes. So if you had it like two years and you had a little bit of growth, then you'd have some tax implications on that plus a penalty, but it's not like Uber. No, but I, I tell you what, I probably would keep them in separate accounts. I'd have a conversion account and uh, my contribution account. Or just track it. Or just track it. If you're going to co-mingle it, you're going to have to say this portion. On this date, I brought them together. The value of the account was X. Here's the growth. And by the way, they count the conversion as of January 1st. So even though we'd be doing it, hey, I did a 2022 conversion. So they haven't done it yet. So let's just say they did it before the end of the year. It's like they did the conversion on January 1st. So it's not really five years. It's really like four and a half years for you Mm -hmm. right now. So, but... 67, I'm sorry, when you convert, it takes about 30 years to make up the conversion. So what would be a good time for him to convert? Like he doesn't have any other income this year? Yeah, if you have really low income and you're not going to pay much tax on it, maybe convert. So here's the rule. You only convert if your tax bracket is going to go up when you retire. Otherwise, it doesn't make a lot of sense. So for young people, It makes sense because they're in a really low tax bracket. Like if you have teenage kids, Mm -hmm. they're 18, 19, 20, they're they're barely, they're not really paying any tax anyway. So let's say that it's your 20 year old and they made $20,000 last year. They had a $12,950 standard exclusion. So they're paying tax on $7,000 at 10% and they can drop six grand into a Roth. They'll never pay tax again on it. That's good. Jeff, Mr. Rich Guy here, converts his entire 401k of a million dollars into a Roth. That's not really bright. He's in the highest tax bracket. He's going to get torn apart. And it's going to take a long, long time. If it's a million bucks, let's just, I'm just pretending on you, but let's just say it was a million dollars. That's going to put him in in the highest tax bracket. Most of that's going to be 37% money. So even though we're in Nevada, where we don't have a state income tax, 37%. How long is it going to take him to make that back? You know, even if he's a great investor, it'd take him about 25 years to make that back. It's stinky. And our internet connection just says it's unstable. That's weird. So anyway, we're getting pretty close to that. Uh, One other other thing um, that seems to be a misconception is if I do a Roth conversion of my traditional IRA, I don't have to convert that whole thing. No, you can do part of it. Yeah. Yeah. We had a little thing that says that Jeff's unstable, so. I'm off my meds. Yeah. All right, let's go. 
Somebody says for the Roth conversion for the near term, they're saying the tax rate is low now, but planning to go up. No, I, then it, I just say, be really, really intelligent about it. If I had a year where let's say I'm a real estate professional and I have some losses that I'm going to take, that's the year that I'm converting. If I'm in a low tax bracket in that, and I know that when I retire, I'm going to be in a higher tax bracket, which is really, <laughs> this is what he says he's off his meds too. You guys could have a, what kind of hey, party would that be? I'd be looking at each other. I've been doing this long enough that when I hear they say something's going to happen in tax, I take the position of, I, I'll believe it when I see it. Yeah. Here's the stats. When you retire, your average tax rate is going to be about 12 to 15%. That's the stats. When you're working your Katush off and you're making money, your average tax rate, all taxes considered is 29%. So statistically speaking, you're going to pay less tax when you retire. So I tend to go like, why are people converting when they're in their prime years? It's going to take you forever to make that back up. We, we did a presentation in 2012 when there was a big, uh, they were changing things. Yeah, The law was written. We did a presentation on the possibilities yep. and they changed it all. So uh, you can't rely on it. Somebody says, I was told if I converted and created a new Roth account, there was no five-year rule because I already had a Roth account that was over five years. Did I understand you correctly? That's not true. I don't think that's true. No. Uh, what the rule is, if once I create a Roth contribution account, mm-hmm. if I create another Roth contribution account, it relies upon your first Roth. Yeah. So that the five-year period starts with your first contribution account. Conversions don't work the same. Could think about it. I could start a Roth account, put $3 in it, and then I can convert $100,000. And I'm going to say, hey, I don't have to worry. Maybe there's something weird about there, but I'm, I'm not aware of that. Elliot or anybody else, do you guys know? Have you ever heard of that? Because I don't want to tell somebody something and ruin their no. day. Yeah, Jeff was correct, what he was saying. And then there is a little bit of a difference with conversions. So uh, if you have a contribution, your first Roth, you do it 10 years ago, that sets it up all the Roth, future Roths for, con- for contributions, regular contributions. Okay. Conversions are a little bit different. Yeah, it gets kind of weird. So if you're going to contribute in future years, you're good. But if you're converting a traditional IRA or 401k, well, I guess, yeah, you could go a traditional 401k or do, is it only IRA? Well, it's going to be the same difference, right? Mm-hmm. You're still going to pay tax on it. Then I think it's that the five-year resets. Is that your understanding? Yeah. It's like Elliot, the the voice from the heavens coming in and saving us. All right. Hey, if you like this type of information or you want to watch a replay of this same uh, Tax Tuesday, you want to go watch a, what were they saying last week or the week before, or I guess two weeks ago and two weeks before that. Like you can look at, we've done hundreds of Tax Tuesdays at this point. You can actually go crazy and see whether uh, we're consistent over time. I think we are, though I might not remember everything. Uh, you can go onto our YouTube channel. You can go to our podcast channel, or you can go to, if you're platinum, you have it in your portal. But uh, YouTube, again, I'll strongly encourage you to go there because I'm always putting new videos up. And I shouldn't just say me. I record them, and then we have a great team that puts them together, edits them, and makes them uh, palatable. And uh, on a lot of topics, and they take our tax Tuesdays and break them down as well and put them up there. So you can, you can do that. And then if you have questions, we answer hundreds of questions a, a week. It's tons of stuff that's coming in. So you can do uh, tax Tuesday at Anderson Advisors, send them in. That's where we grab our questions for the week, by the way. There's a lot that come through and they just throw them on a spreadsheet and they say, Toby, grab some of these questions. And I usually just grab the top 10 15 or whatever I feel like grabbing that particular day, throw them out there and say, let's do it. So this morning or yesterday, actually, I grabbed them yesterday afternoon because they're yelling at me. And I said, here's the questions that we'll go through. And I try to keep them light and, uh, you know, we don't want to answer the same question over and over again. So that's about as quickly as I analyze it. A few more questions coming in and they answered over a hundred written questions during this last uh, hour, which is fantastic. That's Thanks. Amazing. Yeah. They, where else can you get that where an accountant's not just going to give you the love letter that says $300 an hour for answering your question? So, Troy, thank you, Dutch, Dana, and uh, Ian, Christos, Pio, you know, a lot of really good tax professionals on, guys. So, you're not getting 
like somebody that's just pretending to be a tax professional. These are CPAs and experienced accountants and uh, experienced uh, attorneys. So you guys did a thank you for our staff because we don't force them to jump on and do this. They like to pop in and it's, uh, I think we all like to answer questions and not feel like when you do it for no pay, it's something satisfying. So anyway, and if you think there's anybody else that you know that could benefit from this type of information, by all means, share some of the uh, last or some of the Tax Tuesdays with them or invite them on. And uh, they'll see that we're actually real and that we do answer stuff while we're sitting here. We answer it live. I have a chat, a Q&A open, and then the camera's over here and the presentation's down here. So we're always just kind of glancing around because we're reading different screens, except for Jeff, who just I answers. He just he just answers all the questions. So thank you for doing it today, brother. Appreciate it. And uh, unless you have anything else. No, sometimes I don't even read the questions. I just answer it. Yeah, that's even better. I have to read it, but I suck <laughs> at it. And we will see you again in two weeks. Have a good one. All right, guys. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. Show notes for links to everything mentioned in this episode can be found on our website at andersonadvisors.com slash podcast. Be sure you subscribe to our podcast. And if you are already a subscriber, please provide us a review of what you thought of this episode. 